say is that you can't kind of wait for the perfect moment to do things. You've got to have a plan and you've got to do your research and, and all of that. But often if you put too much thought into when you're going to do it, then that moment passes you by and it's a missed opportunity that then you just spend the rest of your life looking back and wondering what if. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Nikeo Grico, to our show today. Nikeo is the founder of Nikeo Beauty, an award-winning skincare brand that has been leading the clean beauty movement since 2002. While moving up the ranks in the entertainment industry, Nikeo realized that many cultures were underrepresented in the prestige beauty space and saw an opportunity in the market. She launched her company based on beauty secrets she learned as a child while visiting her grandmother, who was a coffee maker in Kenya, and watching her use coffee beans to exfoliate and take care of her skin. She has sold her products in retail outlets nationwide, including Ulta, and is now exclusively available in Target. In 2015, Nikeo sold the company to Sundial Brands, which is now part of Unilever. Although she has an incredible success story, Nikeo's journey was far from easy. She's managed the ups and downs of entrepreneurship with so much grace and is a firm believer that failure is not an option. She's passionate about sharing her journey, building a business from the ground up and inspiring others to also follow their passions and live a life with no regrets. Welcome to the show, Nikeo. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So honored to be here. We're so excited to have you here. I thoroughly enjoyed really doing research on you and your company and just so impressed with all the different pivots that you did to really get you to where you are today and where the brand is. So I am super excited to jump into it. So I always love to start from the beginning, especially for you. So much of your family heritage and how you grew up is really the ethos of your company. I would love to learn more about your childhood and life growing up. Yeah, no. So both of my parents um, are educators, worked um, in colleges. My dad um, when we were on the East Coast, was an African studies professor. Um, my mom now currently is a dean, but she worked in library science. Um, and then my dad got an opportunity um, when I was around eight years old to um, start the African studies program at the University of Oklahoma. So we went from being this East Coast-based um, Kenyan family to now living in the middle of the country in Oklahoma, a place dramatically different than New York and New Jersey, where I'd spent the first eight years of my life. And, you know, it was great growing up as a first-generation American. Um, I grew up in Norman, Oklahoma, which is obviously a college town. So it was a little bit more progressive than people would probably imagine. Um, it's in the Oklahoma City area. Um, so, you know, a lot of people, the university did a great job of recruiting people from all over to come in um, to work at the university and worked really hard to get people of all diverse backgrounds. So, you know, for the most part, growing up in my town um, in Norman, I did experience, you know, a little bit more diversity than probably expected. But I'd say the most impactful part of my childhood was growing up as a first generation American. And when I was eight years old, my parents took me to Kenya for the first time. And I got to meet my grandmother, Nikeo, 
um, who I actually named my brand after her. It's not necessarily named after me. Um, and I got to meet my other grandmother, um, Nyikumba, and get to, you know, got to hear these stories about my grandfathers who had passed before the chance I got to meet them. And, you know, it was the first time that I got to actually be with grandparents and cousins, uh, multiple cousins, you know, I had a few cousins growing up in the States. So, you know, I'd say that that was kind of where my beauty journey began, but it was also really, I'd say the part of my journey when I became the most connected um, to my roots and to, um, you know, where it is that my family came from. So that really stuck with me. And then I came back here and, you know, grew up as a kid in Oklahoma. Um, I, I think I've always been in kind of fascinated by beauty and products. I used to always play in the bathroom with my mom's products. My mom would definitely take a lot of her kind of key learnings and beauty secrets um, growing up in Kenya and use them to treat our skin here in the States. Things like using oils and and um, mixing certain ingredients to exfoliate. Those are all, you know, I, I um, often say that clean beauty wasn't a trend for me. It was kind of just all I ever knew. So I used to make nail polishes and sell them around my neighborhood to my friends. So, you know, that part of my um, calling, I think, came pretty, pretty early. Yeah, I love it. You're, you're entrepreneurial from the early days. <laughs> so, it's, you know, you grew up in a family of academics, and it looks like you ended up going to University of Oklahoma, and you studied business marketing, and you had a passion to move to LA to join the entertainment industry. So how was that experience? And what really shifted you to make that move west to the to this industry? Yeah. So, you know, I actually, when I started out in college, I actually started out as a letters major, um, which is like, you know, a classics type major um, and had planned to go to law school Um, around right before my junior year. I felt that kind of, you know, exciting intrigue into the business school. I had a lot of friends that were going to school um, at the Price College of Business at OU and, and loved what they were saying about what they were learning. But I was really afraid because I had spent so much time those first couple of years of college in the classics and taking things like Latin and, you know, all of these literature courses, which I loved. And I was definitely afraid of having to go and, you know, start up taking the prerequisites that were required in math and science in order to apply to the business school. Um, And I have spoken about this before that for some reason I had told myself the story that I wasn't great at math and science. And um, I made decent grades in math and science in high school, but, you know, somehow I was programmed or, or believed to, um, have been programmed to believe that boys were better at math and science. And so when I decided to take the leap into business school, because it was something that was really, really interesting um, to me, I had to catch up on all of these credits um, and realize very quickly that I actually excelled in those subjects. And so that gave me the confidence to, to enter the business school um, with the curiosity and the drive that I needed to, to catch up and to get through it. Um, I loved marketing. I loved um, being able to learn about other brands and brand stories. And, you know, even at that time in the, in the 90s, I was really interested in, you know, social marketing and, you know, businesses that were really cultivated um, to bring better to the world. And so I was also fascinated with um, TV and movies. I wasn't allowed to watch a lot of TV growing up. Um, I think it's a very strong immigrant story. Um, yeah, that, you, know, you know, we watched a little bit, you know, but it was definitely limited. And so I think one thing that happens for those of us that grow up in homes like that is the minute you get to college, it's like that TV never goes off. And so I fell in love with all of these shows, like 
friends and, you know, Thursday night messy TV and I'm dating myself now, but, um, I had the opportunity when I was a junior senior in college to come to California, um, with a girlfriend who had grown up here and to visit her parents. And, I fell in love with the palm trees and the beach and, you know, it was sunny every day. And, you know, I think more than anything, um, and I think people in, in, that live in LA understand this, there's also this like energy of just, I call it like dreamer space, right? Like you could be at Starbucks and you just feel that everybody's here to create. So while I was this business minded business major, I'm also very creative and am very drawn to creatives. I mean, I'm married to an artist, you know, and I thought, gosh, how, what an amazing place to come. I don't have to do the, the jobs that were, were, you know, I was being approached by pharmaceutical companies and, you know, car companies and, you know, to go into these marketing jobs. But for some reason, you know, I felt that, you know, moving to Hollywood and working in TV and film and some sort of marketing or agenting capacity would be more my speed. So I moved here not knowing anyone, um, came the second I graduated from college and found a job. And, and that's how I fell in love with LA and Gosh, 18 years later, I'm still here. Still here. What a great story. <laughs> Visiting LA as a junior and really enjoying the city. And it completely changed the trajectory of what you're going to get into after graduating college. So I'm curious, yeah. what was that experience like moving to a city without really knowing anybody? After first year, um, not having, you know, it, the great thing about places like Oklahoma, it's like, it's so, it's just community and it's like friends on friends on friends. And it's, you know, you really grow up in this kind of familial um, atmosphere. And, and so, yeah, that was tough that those first, those first, you know, six to eight months of living in LA and not really knowing anyone. Um, but I got a job at a big agency and, and, um, I was an assistant. Um, and you know, it was interesting coming out of college. I thought, Oh, I'm going to go work in an agency and in marketing and, you know, being an assistant is starting from the ground up. You're getting coffee, you're answering phones, you're delivering mail. Um, but it really was this kind of I called it like our grad school, you know, um, entrance into Hollywood, because you really did, you know, if you set the intention, it gave you the opportunity to really learn the ins and outs of a business working at a big agency. And so I worked there, I worked in television, I actually worked in reality television. And this is before what we know reality TV to be now. This is like, you know, taxi cab confessions and when animals attack and I mean, hardcore, um, uh, reality, and then um, kind of moved around um, within the industry. Worked in a management and production company, and worked at a studio for a while. Then went right back to representation because what I loved um, was connectivity, and 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 I loved actors and actresses, and you know I was really drawn to the experience and the thrill of you know watching them go up for jobs and. And, you know, the whole process of auditioning and getting feedback and, you know, the packaging aspect of putting actors into movies and, and, you know, I liked, I just loved kind of the nurturing that there was in representation. And so that's where I decided to kind of pour my energy into and, and kind of carve out that space for myself as a career. But the more and more as, it, you know, it went on, the more I realized that I didn't really love, um, reading scripts and and I didn't love the massive amount of rejection that I mean 
actors are strong. You know, they, they are consistently dealing with the word no. And, you know, that was a little heartbreaking to me. So what got me excited was, you know, products that would come across my desk for the actresses or getting to, you know, go to photo shoots with them and see how these you know, the fashion and the beauty aspect of these photo shoots came together, um, the artistry behind it, learning about these designers. And, and so very quickly, I realized the, you know, the, the facet of the business that I was working in was not where I wanted to be. And, and I also was um, underwhelmed by the lack of diversity in, in um, the, especially the premium beauty space. You know, I was constantly, um, you know, going through products for actresses that were from celebrating stories of France or, you know, places in Europe or, or Asia, but very rarely um, would I ever see anything. And this is, you know, in the early 2000s, we've come a long way in the beauty industry as far as the continent of Africa, but very rarely would you see Africa represented in, in any premium beauty. And and often when it was represented, it was done in such a kitschy way, you know, zebra stripes and, you know, things that, um, that to me didn't represent the sophistication of Africa and the beauty. And then, you know, honestly, the natural resources and the efficacy of these ingredients. And so at the ripe old age of 27, I was like, well, I'll do it. <laughs> and I left my job and started making, um, my grandmother's coffee scrub, which she taught me how to make when I was eight, visiting her in Kenya, using Kenyan coffee beans and sugar cane to exfoliate her skin. Looking back at that moment, do you remember what really pushed you to take that leap from a more safe corporate job when you were in entertainment to go all in on this idea that you had? Yeah. So, you know, there were a couple things that were going on, like personally in my life at that time, um, I had started dating, he's now my husband, but I, I started dating my, um, boyfriend at the time and his mother was diagnosed with cancer. And so he was going to be going back to New York, um, to take care of her. And I think I knew pretty early on, um, we had been friends for a long time before we dated that, like we would probably end up together. And, and so, you know, I had been thinking about doing this for a long time, but at that point, you know, I wanted the chance to get to know her before she passed. And so mm. that was um, definitely um, weighing on my mind as, as a reason to, to just take the leap and, and do it. And then also around that time, you know, I left my job in 2001 and September 11th had just happened. Um, at, yeah, I left my job on September 12th so or 13th. Wow. So September 11th had happened. And I remember thinking to myself as we all woke up on that morning of like such deep tragedy and thought to myself, you know, just I thought a lot about the people who went to work that day that weren't fulfilled, that didn't, that didn't love their job. And then that just happened to be their last day on the planet. And, you know, people say something interesting happens at 27, whether it's, you know, from an astrology perspective, Saturn's revisiting you. I think just, a, you know, even as just a, uh, and you're, you're not a kid anymore. You're an adult, but you're not quite, you know, for me, you know, taking those steps towards marriage and children, it's kind of this like really precious time in your life that you only really have to be concerned about yourself, right? You actually, in a positive way, get to be a little selfish. So I thought, you know, I don't want to be one of those people that, that goes and does something every day that I like, but I don't love. And I definitely don't want to be afraid to take a leap when now's the perfect time to do it because I don't have to worry about how is this going to affect my family or my children or, you know, and 
you know, one thing I always say is that you can't kind of wait for the perfect moment to do things. You've got to have a plan and you've got to do your research and, and all of that. But often if you put too much thought into when you're going to do it, then that moment passes you by and it's a missed opportunity that then you just spend the rest of your life looking back and wondering what if. And I just didn't want there to be a what if. I knew it was going to be really competitive. I knew that it was going to be difficult. I knew that I didn't have money to do it so that I was going to have to find capital in order to not only create the product and bring the brand to life, but to support myself. And so all of that was challenging, but I also felt that I had the tools, right? That I had the tools from college and going to business school and knowing how to write a business plan and and knowing how it is that you construct um, the ways of asking um, for investment. I knew how to tell a brand story, um, not just from my time in college, but from working in Hollywood. I mean, there's storytelling every single day. So I had absorbed the ability to tell a story and to tell an authentic story. Um, and yeah, I just went for it. <laughs> That's an amazing story. Thank you so much for sharing it. I definitely agree. I think it's so important for all of us to live a life with no regrets. And, you know, unfortunately, in situations of adversity, it really puts things in perspective, like how you mentioned with 9-11 and, you know, really being with your boyfriend, now husband at the time and his mom going through cancer. So I think really, you know, reflecting on life and figuring out what's important and going for it is just so critical for all of us. So thank you for sharing that. So you finally made this decision to go all in with Nikeo Beauty. What did the early days look like? Wow. So um, I was a new entrepreneur, <laughs> so I didn't have a track record for um, raising, you know, and I hadn't even had like that high of an executive position, right? So sometimes people can come out and raise, you know, based on, you know, they were a banker or they, they had done some sort of executive level um, job that had kind of given them some street cred. Um, I, on the other hand, was just a creative um, that had an idea. So I knew going into it that raising um, from private equity and all of that would be pretty difficult. And so I really just did my homework. I mean, this will definitely date me is that, you know, the first thing I needed to figure out was manufacturing. Um, and so I used the yellow pages. I had heard that there were parts of California, like out in Chatsworth and Sunland, places I had never heard of or been to before, that labs lived where, you know, contract manufacturers lived. And so I started cold calling contract manufacturers, trying to get meetings just so I could figure out how much is this endeavor, you know, going to cost me. And and I knew I wanted to start with a hero product like the Kenyan coffee scrub, because then I was able to tell an authentic story. I think that, you know, with any business, even if you're, and I've used this example before, you're opening a pizza joint, you know, what is authentic to your story that's going to make people want to buy into your pizza joint? I believe that people buy into people first and then product. Um, you, while you do have to have a strong, efficacious product, especially in beauty, people are attracted to to the light of your story. So I had that. I, you know, I'd been passed on, you know, these stories by my grandmother, the coffee farmer, my grandfather, a medicine man. I knew about clean beauty when people weren't really talking a lot about clean beauty in the early 2000s. And so I knew there was a white space. I knew there was a niche. Um, as a woman of color, I knew that in premium beauty, there wasn't a lot of women that looked like me, um, so that there would be an opportunity to disrupt the market. And this was also a time of like great boutique brands, right? So 
brands that were coming to light um, at this time included, you know, Stila in its independent days and Hard Candy, you know, making alternative colors and nail polish, DL and Co, real disruptors in the industry. And so the early 2000s were a good time for indie beauty. And um, I really had to go the friends and family route to, to, I wrote a business plan. I actually used my business plan from college to construct exactly what I needed once I did that research. Once I found a contract manufacturer that would take my business because I was going to be, you know, making such low minimums. Um, and they had a contingency, which was, we will take your business if you have a retailer. I found a retailer, which um, was Ron Robinson at Fred Siegel here in Mel at, on Melrose at the time. He just recently closed his store after 40 years, but he was kind of the godfather of, you know, launching indie brands. And, and I had met his team because I used to do a lot of corporate buying when I worked in Hollywood, um, buying gifts for the clients. And um, so his VP and buyer introduced me to him. He loved the idea. He loved the uniqueness. And he was like, okay, if you find a good contract manufacturer, um, I'll launch you. So those two pieces came together. And then I needed the money. So I, I knew my numbers. I think that's one of the biggest pieces of advice that I can give people is that, you know, once you decide to go for it, figure out how much it's going to cost you and double it, triple it, you know, because you often entrepreneurs fall into the space of like, I don't want to ask for too much because I just want to get it going. And then they run out of money before they ever get to market. Um, and so, yeah, I, I had one family connection here in LA that, um, had some ties back into the oil industry back in Oklahoma. So it's, you know, reaching into your network, um, and people want to help people. And so I was able to get a little bit of capital to, to take the first few SKUs to market. And I was shipping and receiving customer service, accounting, you know, um, founder, PR. Um, I did have a friend that worked in celebrity PR. So for a little bit of equity in my brand, he came on and helped me. And this is before celebrities, you know, got paid to endorse products. Um, so, um, that, you know, that they didn't have contracts with, you know, that they could actually speak in a magazine about a product authentically, and you didn't necessarily have to pay them. There was no influencers. There was no internet, yeah. I mean, internet but it wasn't, you know, what it is now. There was no social media. Um, so, um, yeah, I had authentic actors that I had worked with before that were my testers. I had my friend who was a publicist who now became a partner um, in the company that gave it to his actresses and I got authentic feedback. I had a retailer, Ron Robinson, and he was a, you know, a trendsetter. And then as far as press went, you know, they had said to me, well, you have to have an East Coast location because New York was the hub of all fashion and beauty. And so I knew it would, I couldn't afford to go into a traditional department store. So I decided to find what I found to be the equivalent of a upscale boutique in New York. And so I went to Jeffrey, New York, which wasn't traditionally a place you would sell beauty, but they agreed to launch my brand. And so I launched it, Jeffrey and Ron Robinson. And then I just kind of filled in the rest of the country, having those two retailers as an anchor selling in on my own. 
I'm sure some people are listening to you right now and thinking to themselves, wow, Nikeo really built this amazing brand and pretty early on in your company. And although on the face of it, you guys were in retail outlets nationwide and you were growing and everything was going well, on the flip side, as an entrepreneur leading a high growth business, you know, I'm sure that wasn't easy, especially because at the time your team was pretty small. So what was that experience like for you? Um, traumatizing. <laughs> it was, it, it's heartbreaking. You know, um, you get so excited to grow and grow and grow. And then, you know, two things happen. One, you learn that you can't be the expert at everything, right? That, that you have your gift. And for me, that gift was storytelling, um, understanding ingredients, being able to work with people, um, what I wasn't great at, accounting, um, dealing with the bottom line, supply chain. And ultimately what happened in that first phase, because I've had many stops and starts, as I like to call them, um, the brand grew bigger than I could do on my own. And so after three or four years, you know, and, and, you know, I would have to keep kind of going back into the pot and, and asking for more equity to continue to grow. And, and my investors, while they were supportive and um, kind and, and gave me my start, the beauty space was not their specialty. And I'm a woman and they were all men, right? So it was hard for them to, to justify, you know, pouring more and more money into this brand that was kind of like going here and then catch up and then going here and then we have to catch up and then going here and have to catch up that ultimately um, they did me a huge favor by saying like, we're going to have to, we're going to have to slow down on the investment. And, you know, maybe now's the time for you to, to explore another way to take this brand further. So while at the time it was heartbreaking and at this point I had gotten married I had had a child, I had a little baby at home. Um, you know, we were really close to going into a recession. It was a really difficult time to have to think about shutting the business down or or backing up um in order to to take it further. So I did that. Um we also had an experience where the brand had been on the Ellen DeGeneres show for her holiday segment. And on the Oprah show, when she still had a show on air, um, in the same week, which ultimately crashed my website and put me into such a back order situation that I couldn't fill the orders. So then it was like, as I was kind of inching towards figuring out a new way of being, I was then forced to. And, and I think sometimes that, you know, that's a good lesson too as entrepreneurs is that, you know, don't be afraid to leap into a new normal or to take a step back. Um, everybody loves a comeback. <laughs> so that became kind of my mantra during those times. And, um, and so I did. I had to shut it down. I had to figure out a way to make income. So I once again went back into the toolbox and, and what have been my key learnings over this time, which is I knew how to start a business. I knew how to take a business to market. I knew how to communicate with the press. You know, these are all skills that maybe I'd had a little bit of the press piece when I had worked in Hollywood, but not 
um, you know, working in my own press or working for my own goal and my own brand. And so those were tools. And so I thought, well, gosh, you know, while I'm waiting to make my comeback, I might as well, and I need to make money, I might as well use these tools from this toolbox and and help others, um, which also became kind of a, a running theme for me as an entrepreneur that, you know, we all need mentors. And, and when we have mentors, we also need to become mentors and, and help others. And so I decided to start helping other people figure out how to start a t-shirt line, how to start a blog, you know, how to, you know, raise, how to get products into stores. And, and I did that for a little while while then simultaneously um, refiguring my business plan, um, another tool for um, any entrepreneur is always be willing to go back and edit. And so I was editing my business plan and I was setting bigger goals for myself, which was I need to be able to, to get the help for the things that I don't know how to do, or I don't know how to do well. So I wanted somebody in the space of beauty. I wanted people with key supply chains and operations. I wanted connections um, bigger than I had with contract manufacturers, bigger than I'd worked with. And so I went to task to find that. And then during the recession, um, ended up partnering or licensing the brand exclusively to a large beauty company in New York, where I spent from 2008 to 2014 working under their umbrella and um, launching Nikeo at HSN. And so a whole channel of selling um, fascinating business to learn. I loved it. I was petrified to sell on camera and it was such a fun learning experience for me. And then when that licensing deal ended, once again, I had to reset and figure out, okay, what's important to me in the business now, which is what led me to Sundial because I did really want to amp up and actually make, um, the social piece, um, the, the fact that as I was, you know, now two babies, you know, skincare line for, you know, many years at this point, I, what was important to me and what was important to me was what impact am I making in the world and how is this brand or any brand that I create going to actually, um, empower others and provide opportunity. So, you know, that's what led me to Sundial Brands. Um, Sundial Brands, for those people that don't know, are the makers um, and founders of a brand called Shea Moisture. Um, the brand was founded by um, Richelieu Dennis and his mother and his best friend from college. And, you know, what I loved about the brand was, you know, and I think this is also an interesting piece as an entrepreneur, is that, you know, it can be a pretty lonely world, right? And and what I most connected to um, when I came to Sundial is the fact that I could look at another founder, um, a man of African descent, a man who was committed not only to efficacious products, but making a real impact in, in the communities in Africa and the work he was doing, um, the Shea Moisture brand was doing, for instance, um, in West Africa, where they had irrigated a village to bring water to a village. So girls wouldn't have to fetch water. They could go to school. Um, they have something called community commerce. Um, so the women in the village were then trained, um, and how to market and farm Shea. 
then now the company purchases the shea from this cooperative. And so there's this whole cycle of it's not just giving back, which is important. Sometimes it's important just to write a check and, 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 to, and to give funds. This was an opportunity to actually see how a system created could then help to create generational wealth um, within a community. And that was really, really attractive to me and something that I hadn't gotten to really fully explore um, in my brand. And so um, I would say that was my number one priority um, at that point in my life. Um, I was 40. I had just lost my father. You know, that's when I really think it clicked in that, yeah, this has to be bigger than my job, bigger than skin. It's fun and I love it. But but how how is it that this brand and that myself, how are we going to do better for the planet and for the world? Absolutely. And it seems like you are definitely with the right partner right now. And, you know, you and your team are really giving back and doing something more than just selling a beauty product. So that's beautiful to hear. And what I think really resonated with me is how you say, don't be afraid to take a step back, that you paused your business because like you mentioned, it wasn't the right environment to raise money. You had two kids at the time and you really used what you learned to launch your company to be a consultant and just make money. So I think that's just good to hear because you know some people think if they pause what they're doing, they'll lose momentum and it's a failure, but really it's just a temporary pause until you're ready for your comeback, like you mentioned. So I loved hearing that. And you briefly talked about the power of mentorship when you were going through those difficult times in your business. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, I mean, definitely within my industry, um, I've been really, really lucky to um, attract incredible mentors. Um, and And when I say incredible mentors, you know, they're not just people who always say yes to me, right? Um, that they really make the investment in understanding um, my desires and and my dreams and my goals, but help to help me level set, right? And and pivot at times when needed. So, you know, through the journey, um, I I sought them out. You know, I was really intentional and, and, you know, and sometimes it's a little intimidating to, to go to people and ask for help. But what I found is that it's never failed me. And so, you know, Ron Robinson being my first retailer, he was one of my very first mentors within this industry. Um, one of my former bosses, um, when I worked in the entertainment industry, she has been one of my most incredible mentors. And even some of the people that I worked with when I had my licensing deal, people in the television industry that, that helped me with HSN publicists, you know, my partners at Sundial, um, you know, regardless of the outcome of success for the brand, um, they have fed my soul. And, and given me the confidence to stay the course. And it is not always easy. And it's not always as glamorous as it looks. And it's, you know, I've yet to be able to, you know, breathe a deep sigh of relief that, wow, this brand's going to be around for 10 more years or forever or whatever. Like, it's still a hustle. Um, but in turn, what I've learned is that 
while they've all been these, and then I also have my tribe of incredible women, and that's a whole other, a whole other piece, um, incredible piece that, that is constantly nurtured and, um, and I couldn't do what I do without them and, and my family. Um, but, you know, the mentorship piece really, and I would say, especially once I got to Sunday, like I've always loved working with kids. I've always loved volunteering. I've always loved getting involved in different, you know, charities here in Los Angeles, but the active, um, participation, um, and the action of mentoring was something I felt very convicted and called to do. And so one of the benefits of being at, at Sundial was, you know, that's non-negotiable. That is a key pillar of your business. And so they from get go were, you know, okay, so what do you, what do you want to do? Who are you going to help? And, and Girls Inc. had been, um, an organization that I'd been introduced to through some friends and, I had gone to a couple of their events and was so moved by these girls that came from such adversity and were killing it in life. And, you know, they have this program within Girls Inc. called Operation Smart, which is their STEM programming. And because I, you know, as I told you the story about this like crazy story, I told myself um, about boys being better at math and science and girls and taking that all the way into basically adulthood. Um, I really wanted to get involved in this STEM programming because we didn't have STEM programming when we were growing up, you know, and, um, and also help these girls to understand that like STEM jobs are fun. Having your own beauty brand and working with formulas and labs, that's a STEM job. And, and, um, and so I've gotten the great privilege of being able to actually be an active mentor. You know, when I'm in New York, my office is in New York, even though I live in LA. When I'm in New York, um, it's so much fun. I get to bring the girls to work with me. We do mentorship days, you know, here in LA, I get to go into the schools. I actually sit on the board now of, of Girls Inc. in Los Angeles. And so that for me is probably hands down the most fulfilling part of what I do. And and it is this full circle. Um, I'm in such deep gratitude to my mentors. And so I hope that I can make even an inch of difference in these girls' lives like my mentors have for me. Wow, that's so beautiful to really be able to give confidence to young girls and give them that exposure that really anything is possible, I think is just so profound. So I love what you're doing and you're making such a massive impact. So I want to switch gears and get your thoughts on how do you manage your life being a wife, a mother of two kids, a daughter, a friend, and a founder of a growing business? Well, it's really interesting. And, you know, this time of sheltering at home has been um, an interesting shift of, of balance and priorities. But, um, you know, I think probably the best advice I have been given and give in regards to this is that we have to just go easy on ourselves. You know, I think, I don't know, especially with women, we put so much pressure on ourselves to do everything at a hundred percent and it's literally virtually impossible. So I think being an acceptance of that, um, is number one, that nothing is going to get a hundred percent, right? Sometimes there's such imbalance, like, you know, work is getting 70, kids are getting 15, you know, friends are getting 10, husband's getting five, right? Like there is, you know, the constant need to kind of go back and, and refigure, but in the process to go easy on yourself, not to, 
you know, internalize it all, right? Like to speak about the stress. Like I'll say to my kids, they're 14 and nine, you know, I'm feeling really overwhelmed right now. You know, I feel like I'm not being a very good homeschool teacher because I'm really worried about keeping my sales up at Target and cooking a lot of meals. And so I feel like maybe I'm shortchanging you right now. And and what the interesting thing is in expressing where you're at with the imbalance or or the lack of, you know, whatever, is that even just in owning it and expressing it and saying it out loud, you feel better. So, and then it also motivates you to figure out how to put yourself in a little bit of better balance and whatever it is that might be suffering. And so, yeah, I think it's being conscious. I mean, my son said to me the other day, so every morning when you wake up, mommy, you have to go right on your phone, you know? And like, I was like, wow, bang a job, mommy, you know, but at the same time, I'm like, you know what, Rocco? Yeah, I kind of do because I have to be able to look at my phone to see what's happening at work because I'm not getting on a plane and going to the office and I'm not necessarily having as much face time with the people I work with. So I need to see if they've reached out to me with any updates about work. But what I could do better is maybe giving myself some time to meditate in the morning before I look at my phone or start my exercises or do something so that I don't immediately jump into it. And i.e. set the example for you that that's what you're supposed to do every day, right? But so I think it's owning it, um, honoring it, going easy on yourself and knowing that like no one's perfect. So why should you be? It's true. I feel like, especially as women, we try to be perfect in every single aspect. And ultimately, that doesn't really serve you or the people around you in the best way. But this interview is full of just so many gems. But I'd love to get your thoughts on what advice do you give to entrepreneurs that you mentor based on, you know, all the different lessons and experiences you've gone through in your life? I mean, you know, I think I talked before about know your numbers, right? you know, really do your homework, um, ask for help, um, be a woman who supports other women is number one. I just did a live with a dear friend of mine who also has a skincare line, Shawnee Darden. She's my esthetician. And I did a live with her right before this. And we unexpectedly got into this whole conversation about, you know, here we are two women who are very dear friends, um, in the same tribe of women, but also have skincare lines and we're doing a live and I'm talking about her launch at Sephora and she's talking about my launch at Target and we authentically support one another. We support one another as women of color founders. We support one another as girlfriends. We support each other in mothering, in marriages, etc. right? And that sadly, um, even today, with all this talk with female empowerment and stick up and women supporting women that like we both still experience competition in a way that is bananas, right? Um, that women who say that they support other women that we have experienced firsthand don't support us. <laughs> um, and that that's still a thing, right? Like here we are trying to change, like help this future generation. Like we're not just here to do this for us. Like we are, we have these eyeballs staring at us. Um, we have a huge responsibility to show this next generation of women how to be, because we got to fight for each other because there's a lot of people not fighting for us still as women. Right. And so, yeah, that is probably 
my biggest piece of advice is that be a woman in business who supports other women and be authentic about it. Don't say you're going to do it and then behind closed doors, be jealous. Do that. Because in doing that, when you whatever you put out into the universe comes back to you full fold. And so if your mission and your job is to be kind, to inspire, to empower, to to give back in whatever ways that you know how, and to help other women by bringing them along and, and knowing that there's space for all of us. The world is better if we all succeed. Um, that's the most important thing that you can do as a founder. And then from a business standpoint, know your numbers. Don't go into um, know your partners. Know, know, don't just take money from anyone. I think that's a, that's a great piece of advice. Is that, oh, I see a child. That's Sorry. my son. Um, that's, that's okay. I'm just doing a podcast. Um, I, I think that like partnerships are like, you know, it's like dating. It's like kissing a lot of frogs, right? You know, make sure that you're aligned with, with your partner's mission for you and your brand or whoever you're taking money from, whether it be private equity or, or whatever. And then don't be afraid to go for it. You know, one of the things people ask me about a lot as a woman of color, um, and investing, um, when I raised at 27 in 2001, you know, my first capital to do this, um, you know, I had no idea the ridiculous numbers of like less than 0.02% of black women were receiving funding. Nobody told me that. I'm so glad I didn't know because it would have discouraged me. And so while it's empowering to have that information because knowledge is power, for me personally, I'd say if you are a woman of color looking to raise money, do not let those statistics deter you. If you're a woman, period, looking to raise money because all stats for women aren't great. Don't let that deter you because it takes one yes from the right partner in order for you to start your business. And there are a lot of people out there with a lot of money that want to change that narrative. And so look for them. That is so powerful, Nikeo. And honestly, when you look into the stats of, you know, the percentage of women-owned businesses that get invested in and then women of color and just diverse backgrounds, it's just a fraction of that. And you can instantly be intimidated and discouraged, like you mentioned. But to your point, I think it's so important to remember you only need one yes to open that door for you and help take your business to the next level. So I appreciate you sharing your story. So I want to close with one more question that we ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition Mm. of wealth. What does wealth mean to you? Wealth, prosperity, and abundance all mean the same thing to me, which is peace and fulfillment. Um, Being healthy I feel so wealthy. Being loved, I feel so wealthy. And share my gifts um, with others makes me wealthy. So yeah, I don't I've never seen wealth as money. I've always seen it as fulfillment. 
Beautiful. Well, we're so grateful you got to share all this abundance and wise words with us today. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Congrats on the podcast. I'm so excited to listen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, go to BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.